Sometimes you walk through one door and a whole world opens up to you. That happened to me 23 years ago when I walked into Fitzgerald's nightclub in Berwyn, Illinois. I'd heard about the place, the great music, the great roadhouse vibe, home to roots, blues, jazz, big band, Americana, country, all-out rock and roll, a hidden gem to many in the Chicagoland area. The club was and still is actually world-renowned. It's one of the great music venues in part because of the tremendous artists who've played there, but also because of something a little harder to put your finger on. There's magic to the place. There's also Bill Fitzgerald, who with his wife Kate and members of the Fitzgerald family has run the club for 37 years. When you're in Fitzgerald, you're in Bill and Kate's living room. It's a gathering place with music as the unifying force, but it doesn't stop there. When the Cubs were in the World Series, Bill built bleachers in the parking lot, put up a giant screen, gave away peanuts, and sold hot dogs. When David Letterman left his late-night show, Bill put it on a big screen in the club and hired Expo 76, the best good-time band around, to play live in and out of commercial breaks. Occasionally, the urge strikes Bill to screen the band's swan song, The Last Waltz, in the club. People also gather on election night. Some friends of mine and I do an old-style Christmas variety show there that's become an annual tradition. And once when I made a feature-length collection of four short stories... Bill let us screen the film and pause between stories to do short music sets featuring some of the performers from the film. Part Bill Veck and part Bill Graham, but then he's all Bill Fitzgerald. And I tell you all this so that maybe you'll understand how much of a stomachache I got recently when Bill's decision to put the club up for sale made front-page news in the Chicago Tribune. Bill, it seems, has had enough of the dream life of owning the coolest bar I've ever been to. He's increasingly drawn to yet another dream life on the Mississippi River. He's 65. He thinks that's a good time to make the move. And who are we to try to talk him out of it? But what about us? I mean, God bless him. He certainly earned it. But really, what about us? Well, the hope is that the club will one way or another continue under new ownership. It all remains to be seen. But the night of the day the article appeared in the Tribune, the great Chuck Prophet, no stranger there, performed for a spirited but queasy crowd. Prophet teased about it, said, who knows, maybe the place will become a Costco's. The crowd gasped. He asked them to turn up the lights so he could see the place one more time in case he never got the chance to play there again. The place went bright, like when a movie is over. Prophet looked out at all of us in the naked light. He looked around at the seasoned club, deer head still on the wall from the previous owners, years gone now. Then he smiled, wished Bill luck, and said, if these walls could talk, they'd say, wash me. Our guest today is Bill Fitzgerald. Later in the show, Sue Salvi tells Amazon what's wrong with Amazon. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. A couple of years ago, the Letterman left his talk show. Mm-hmm. And you guys had a great, uh, typical of you, did a big screen event on that here in the yeah, club. Yeah. And you had Expo 76 um, play kind of the Paul Schaefer band. They played in and out of commercials. And it was really, That's right. it was yeah. a great, great time. Yeah. But I remember having a little bit of a talk to you about during that period. And it was really, I, I have to say, it, it seemed to me that at the time, your mind was already, the, the wheels were already turning. 
like when does one leave the stage you know yeah and we talked a little bit about letterman and it seemed like your wheels were already turning about oh yeah when yeah. what this means and, and mm -hmm. when's the right time and why now yeah i think you know i've been thinking about it for a while i've been thinking about it and i've been looking at the you know just think just noticing how i feel you know about about booking the club and being here and and uh the routine of this and 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 just feeling um looking at the numbers you know uh that i've been at it 37 years and i'm just like you know well maybe maybe it's time to think about it you know and and uh and and i think um seeing other people like i mean not that i'm david letterman or anything but but he's had a nice career and i i, I like the way he treated his his you know the the way he ended his time there. I liked the way he did it and enjoyed watching that. But I thought, yeah, when are you going to do this? You know, when's it right for you? Yeah, I've been feeling it and thinking about it for a while, talking about it for a while, and and this last couple of years, we finally decided to take the step and hire somebody that can help us do it. And and uh, and that was it. You know, just engaging you know a broker to actually do it was the uh, was the the thing that really got the ball rolling. But once you do that, then it's like, well, here we go, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, not to carry the comparison too far, but the other thing I remember when Letterman left was that he said that he would probably never go back to the Ed Sullivan Theater again, that it would just be too hard for him to go back. We're sitting in the club right now. Mm -hmm. This is This place has been your living room honestly but, right i mean you live a mile away from here less than a mile away from here but i i think of this as your your house mm -hmm. um uh do you think about that when you're in the club now can you imagine coming back if it isn't your place i think i can i mean i i hope that's the case i mean i think it's going to be um once it's all said and done and and it's in somebody else's hands I'm going to be very comfortable with that, with, you know, the walking away part or the, it, there'll be, I will probably dance some kind of a jig or whatever. It'll be like anybody feels that way when they sell their house or I, I'll be okay with that because I've thought it through. I'm, I'm comfortable with it, but I would love to be able to come back here and see, you know, some old friends here play here and see that the place is in good hands and things are going well and, and, uh, you know, I think it'd be great. I would love it. And, you know, I think, yeah, this has kind of been my clubhouse, I think, too. I mean, I, I always kid around that my mom and dad always let me have, we moved a lot, you know. We had spent time in Cleveland and Cincinnati and, you know, Evanston, Oak Park, you know. Um, and I think everywhere we lived, my mom and dad let me have the, the attic of the garage or the, you know, the the potting shed or the uh the basement or whatever to to create like a little clubhouse tree houses i had a tree house in almost every house we had so i think this nightclub has sort of been that little kind of an extension of that a, a place you know that i could play the music i liked and just have a, a room that, that that was my you know that i felt comfortable in and and uh you know, I didn't think I would invite this many people in, but I used to have, you know, we used to have little carnivals at my, in my parents' garage where we would invite the neighborhood kids. So I guess that was sort of a, a beginning to all this, but uh, for it to end up what Fitzgerald's is now is, I think it's part of that, you know, and uh, 
it's pretty cool, pretty unique, I think. And it's been a family, like you know, it's been a family business. And our, our group here, our staff, our bartenders and waitresses and, you know, Jimmy the cleanup guy, I mean, you name it, our doorman, they're in the family. We're all part of this. And it, uh, you know, I was thinking about my, how it's, um, like my daughter Annie got choked up, you know, all my kids, they, they, I'm sure they think back growing up how much this place had to do with their life, you know, and the memories that they've had. So it's, uh, yeah, I think it means a whole lot more to people than we ever imagined, and we're hearing about it now, you know, so. How did, so how did it all start? Um, it was, uh, ni- let's see, uh, 1980, New Year's Day, uh, at a, uh, a New Year's Day brunch with some friends in the city, you know, and it's, late afternoon four or five o'clock you've had your bloody mary and a couple beers and you're watching football or whatever and you start talking about things and and music and uh and uh, wouldn't it be fun to open a bar everybody has those conversations it was one of those kind of things and and then i said well i know a place that'd be pretty cool and and uh don't know if it's available but it was the deer lodge so so the next day or two i thought i'm gonna go over there and find out and nose around a little bit and talked to the bartender at the Deer Lodge and she said well not only is it for sale but it's it's possibly being sold uh there's two brothers down the street that want to turn it into a steakhouse what was it like then the Deer Lodge was a um uh it was one of those places that it had a heyday back in the 50s with uh you know Otto and Lou Kubik ran it and they they uh they were involved with music, uh, jazz music, you know, early Chicago jazz music uh, here at the Deer Lodge and also at the famous Hunt Club in Stickney. So when we were coming in here, I think it was, uh, you know, Lou was getting older and her health wasn't good. Her husband had died many years ago. I think when they were married, she was like 19 and he was 55. It's one of those kind of deals. And they were in business together in Wisconsin. It, they had a resort bar up there or something, but uh, so I think when we, when we bought it from Lou, she was she had to get out. She was having problems, and the place was run down. The music wasn't happening. Um, I remember there were decorations for every holiday up at all times. <laughs> Easter bumping into Christmas, bumping into Valentine's, and all that stuff. And you know, you had some regulars in here, and the the gals that ran the bar were great. You know, most of them were in their fifties, and and we, me and my friends, were uh, just a small group of people under thirty that she would let in here. She, everybody else was a punk, but I think we we helped her bring in some beer one day, you know, off, out of a shopping cart, and then we were friends forever. So I felt comfortable coming in here, and we would just come in once a month play the funny jukebox, play some pool, and hang out. And uh, that's how familiar we were, you know, with the place. And I think a lot of other people would pop in here now and then because it was such an oddity, and it looked like it landed here in a, you know, like a Wizard of Oz scene just dropped in Berwyn, you know. And uh, and it was, it was uh, that, that's why I was familiar with it, and that's why I brought it up at that, at that brunch, and that's why I talked to the bartenders and ended up talking to Lou and we ended up buying it. The opening night was, uh, I think it was a Friday, Friday night, December 18th. And we had decided at that point to open with jazz because I was, 
I was uh, kind of becoming a regular at Andy's Jazz Club in the city and had met uh, John Defoe and Penny Tyler who were in, involved with jazz in the city, uh, Jazz at Five and uh, the Jazz Institute and all that. So we opened up with a really fine jazz uh, uh, quintet and it was called Fitzgerald Stomp Jazz Band and uh, it was led by Eric Snyder and the bass player was Truck Parham. Uh, Joe Johnson on piano, Wayne Jones on drums, and John Defoe on the rhythm guitar. Wonderful group. So we opened with that, which I think made my dad proud, and, and I knew it was quality. I knew it was a great way to start and, and see what happens. And I mean, it was crazy. You know, you're trying to get the place open, and I remember laying on the floor fighting with plumbing, and, you know, people are stocking the bar, and you have these new people you don't know behind the bar, and you know, I remember the guys were had black pants on and white shirts, button-down shirts with bow ties. I'm like, what is, what is this, you know? <laughs> but that's how we opened. I'm, this is all flashing back now. But uh, I always remember running to the basement to juice, the, and I ran into a guy who had a stein in front of his face, and, and the glass hit him in the mouth, and I thought, and I just kept going. I just looked at him, and he looked okay, but I thought, what if I broke his tooth, you know? And, <laughs> And uh, it was a very chaotic night, but it, it... Did you have that, like, I remember when I moved into my house, there were certain things about it. It, was, it needed a lot of work. And I remember yeah. the first night we stayed there, I was laying in bed thinking, what the hell have I done? I mean, I just think I remember at that age just feeling pulled along by it, you know, because we seemed to have pretty success right off the bat. There were articles that came out that were very exciting, and and before you know it, we were booking, you know, different things. We'd have a country band or a rock and roll band, or, you know, I booked the first blues actor was Blind John Davis. I just remember being, yeah, really inspired and and uh, didn't have time to think about. I didn't don't remember worrying too much. I really don't, um, and that's kind of great. <laughs> I didn't worry. I was just thrilled. You know, with all the little things you have to think about with a bar and, and, and then experience the shows. and Well, plus you yeah. seem to be a good, you know, anytime that we're here, this is like you throwing a party this place most often. It can you're, be. You're a yeah. natural host. You're also incredibly busy. And I'm not sure you're a, um, a very relaxed guest. I've seen you at parties and things and where it seems like, you'd be much more comfortable being in charge and <laughs> and that there's an uneasiness to being the guy yeah. who's getting served as opposed to the guy who's doing the serving. Is that, is that kind of your MO? Yeah, I've got, and if I've noticed that about myself. I've got to learn to kind of be a better guest and just, you know, don't, you know, because you're right. I'm always jumping up and noticing things and touching. Right. I don't know if you're going to be able to change that. I mean, all the guys at the, you know, I belong to that, that social club, the Chancery. And, right. and uh, I'm always getting teased about like, uh-oh, the, the light's just dimmed. Bill must be here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you I know. think that's true. And it sounds to yeah. me like you've always had that. You talk about parties oh, yeah. in your garage and all that stuff. I think Kate right. was telling me, didn't you have like a like a record player that was battery operated or something like that? Oh yeah, I used, to, oh yeah, that was back in Cincinnati. My buddy, uh, John O'Donnell had a, uh, uh, it was a singer, the sewing company, had a singer uh, battery operated LP, you know, 33 and a third 
uh, we'd play albums on the corner or, or uh, and we probably albums on the corner. That just sounds so oh, yeah. awesome. I can't, have, I and don't think I've ever seen a battery operated phonograph. Oh yeah. We'd sit, era. sit on a curb or on a, somebody's stoop and play LPs. I mean, I remember hearing like playing like that silver cream album and the crossroads is on that. And we'd be like, here we are playing this music, you know, having an RC and a candy bar. <laughs> <laughs> So what? How did, where does this musical like? You know, I know Brian, your brother, is a mm-hmm. musician. Is he the only musician in the family? Yeah, right. Um, obviously, you're not playing music, but you're so connected to the music here, and you're uh, like, where did this? Uh, my mother and father certainly. They were, you know, they were. They like to have parties, and they love music. They, my dad especially, was a big jazz fan. He was big on the. Uh, you know Miles Davis, uh, you know the the uh, Benny Goodman, Teddy Wilson, swing tet stuff, you know all that uh, big band music. Um, and he was a big guy. He, he liked to bring home uh, LPs from the library, so we'd hear folk music or blues, and and uh, and then you know I'm like I'm 64, so when I'm growing up, I mean I think the first uh, 45 I bought was. Um, um, oh, what the hell was it? Love Me Do, I think it was, lo- yeah, yeah, with the harmonica solo, yeah, that was that. And I had a really early um, Frank Zappa album with a kind of a folk song on it. It was, uh, it was called You're Probably Wondering Why I'm Here. So Am I, So Am I. I remember buying that. So I, I got in on the early, you know, the, the top 40 radio rock and roll stuff, um, you know, Sam the Sham, the Stones, the Beatles, all that. And then I got into buying out, you know, like uh, like the Beatles, uh, you know, Sgt. Pepper and all that sort of thing. And then having Val's Halla as an outlet, that was my, you know, instead of dating, I would go to Val's and buy an, an album. Tell people, <laughs> tell, what, what, what's Val's all about? Tell people. Val's Halla Record Store, which was over on South Boulevard, mm-hmm. their, their main original location. That was a great place to go to, you know, buy the newest LP that was oh, being yeah. released or get her advice, you know. Um, and she's another one. I mean, frankly, there, I can draw a pretty direct line between you and her in terms of your passion for music and yep. the way you have brought it to people and and, mm-hmm. and turned them on to things. And, I mean, you guys have a lot in common when you think about it. Yeah. And she's still at it. Right. So I think back then, rather than the internet, you, you'd hear things that you like on the radio. You'd hear it on, on uh, probably XRT, you know, and maybe some college radio stations, uh, talking to friends, going to parties, actually r- opening up a Rolling Stone and looking at the reviews. You know, I used to do that a lot. Which artists do you think had the most influence here in terms of making this place a little bit what it is? I mean, I, I think there have been certain artists over the years that kind of like have come back yeah uh, right at, to the point where they're seem like part of the family here well yeah when you first brought mentioned i thought you're going to ask me pre fitzgeralds I, I would say you know the, the music of the band oh right and, and even their albums like the the brown album with the pictures on the back with the they're in the basement posing in front of an antique piano with that great yeah. drum head i think this place I think if the band could have ever done a photo shoot or a or play in a in a small club for a little video, they would have loved, you know. 
Rick Danko played, and he, and he said, oh, this is a great room, yeah. So, But uh, there's that. But then I think— Rick um, Danko played here. Yeah, he did a couple times, yeah. So, uh, solo or duo, yeah. He was great, yeah. That must I mean, have his been a big deal was, for you. Oh, it was great, yeah. Oh, and also um, um, Garth Hudson played here with uh, kind of a country country rock group. I forget which one it was. But, uh, yeah, he played a, a accordion and keyboards with the group here. He was great, yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. That I, mean, I know you're huge into the band. And all he wanted to talk, he was sitting here by the soundboard watching the, the guys get tuned up. And, and he just wanted to hear about the... He said, "How's Eddie Blazancic doing?" He wanted to hear about the polka scene around here, because he knows he knows that music and loves it. And, um, so they're, there was they're that probably the biggest influence on you. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, musically, and um, and there are so many other groups that were influenced by the band, of course, and and uh, and the like. And it's, uh, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, I always talk about Marsha Ball. I mean, what a what a way to start, and uh, and I think. She like uh, growing up in Texas, Louisiana. She started out as a, she was a country act, you know, and she had a. I think her first band was called Frida and the Fire Dogs. So she liked country music. She understood. She was lived, grew up around Cajun music, and then she, you know, she went to school in in Austin, and she um, would go to Lafayette and and hear uh, Zydeco music. You know, this sort of a bluesy hybrid. And uh, so she, you know, and, and she was a smart girl, and she's a great musician, and knew all this stuff, you know. So we go see her a couple times at the, uh, at the Wise Wolf Pub. And then I met Ben Sandmill, who's a, a musician from Chicago, who's now in New Orleans. So I think those guys kind of helped, uh, helped me get a booking. You know, I met Marsh, and I said, I'm opening a club, you know, hat in hand, very shy. Oh, now we'd love to have you play, and and uh, she um, she was very nice, and she took a chance on, on us, and I think from her playing here, that exposed uh, the club and us to, you know, uh, a professional act from the South playing all this great music and filling our heads with all this these thoughts of the Gulf Coast and New Orleans and the Jazz and Heritage Festival. Um, and then Marsha and her band probably go back to Texas and they start talking up this place in Chicago they played. So many things sprung from that, you know. My, my first trip to the Jazz and Heritage Festival came from that. And I, I saw, I went down there by myself and I saw so much stuff. Um, it was such a great experience. You go to the festival and you see all this music and all this food and, and the way, they, and, and, and it's, uh, yeah, you're meeting people, then you're going out to the clubs, and I get to meet Clifton, you know, the Clifton Chenier, the king of Zydeco, at uh, the famous Tipitina's, you know, and it's uh, it's not what you, you you think of in your mind, you know, you go down there, and then he's just this guy on break, sitting in a chair, and he shakes your hand, and, you know, his eyes brighten a little bit when you hear about Chicago, because I think he wanted to play Chicago, and got his phone number, and... Um, uh, you know, so that booking him came out of that, you know, and that was a big deal. That was a, well, Bruce Aglauer said that was a coup that you booked him at your club, you know. It's not easy to get him up here. How'd you do it? I just asked him, you know, and, and he and I were friendly and, and uh, kept after it, kept, kept on the phone with him. I think I booked him directly, no agents. It was just me and him, and uh, and I think we, we just hit it off pretty good, and uh, I think he liked the idea of, uh 
getting up to Chicago and he was a very competitive guy, you know. And he, I mean, he used to, I think he thought that his version of uh, what I say, that he that he kicked Ray Charles' ass pretty much, you know. And he kind of did, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think he thought of himself as a blues man. So where else do you want to play but Chicago to where Muddy Waters is from and James Cotton and all these people. So, um, so yeah, that and... And then, you know, then you just, I was looking back at our, like, our 2001 calendar. We really have stuck by a lot, a lot of the same artists, like Brave Combo, you know. They've been playing here for years, you know. And, and, uh, and part of me feels like, well, you know, I should have diversified a little bit and done, but, but I like that, that we, we're, you know, we are a club. You know, we don't like, you know, have a phase with an act and then it's like, well, that's it. Now let's move on to something else or let's change the, what's the fad now, you know? So uh, we never had a line dance show here ever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. I was thinking of all the people that I've seen here, you know, Robbie Folks, Chuck Prophet, Alejandro Escovedo, Grave oh, Combo, Graham Parker, Mavis Staples, Otis Clay. I mean, it goes on and on. Um, and then you've had guys like, you know, well, there's a, the legend of Stevie Ray Vaughan playing here. Yeah. Tell us about that. How, what happened well, there? Well, that was, uh, I think it was 19, it was the first year we were open, 1981. It was probably in May. It was either March or May. It began with an M. And that was his first time in here. Small crowd. But it was Stevie Ray Vaughan in double trouble, you know. They actually, they used my, I was, I had a little uh, condo apartment at the corner of South Boulevard in Austin at the time, a basement apartment, and they, they stayed at my place during the day, not, not overnight, just during the day. Took showers and, you know, caught a breath there and, and uh, played that night. And it was, it was an awesome, and we had already gotten a little bit of a feel for the, the Texas guitar thing that was happening. Like Marsh's guitar player, um, I think his name is Eddie Murray, um, he uh, he had that style, that big Texas blues sound, mm -hmm. and uh, you know Fender Stratocaster. So when we got Stevie here, it was like, man, you know, very powerful thing. And there was no album to listen to. There was it was pre pre any signing, and uh, you know we we got a, we got a great show here. And then he came back again in July. He played on July third, which was the our first Fourth of July celebration. He played here the third. And then on the fourth, that Saturday, we had a big jazz all-star group, you know. But, uh, but uh, yeah, that was uh, – I, and I did sound for him, so I remember it very well. And I remember being, being very loud. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was the uh, – I guess I was the mother of invention that night with him. When his first show here, I was like, you know, it's so loud. Um, there's – your guitar is like – it's like a knife uh, to the ear anybody in line with your amp is just killing me you know I said and and I had this pexiglass screen in the back room that I was using to mic uh, vibes with I had a PZM mic on there so I had built a stand and I said well his road manager Cutter said well he's got to have that volume to to have the feedback I said well what if could could we maybe block it because I've seen like on the Johnny Carson show they'll have a uh, surrounds by the drum kits to, to keep it from getting into the microphones to cut it down a little bit and they were like hey knock yourself out man whatever you want to do so I, I 
I put it about a foot and a half from the the grill of his guitar amp and that allowed him to be loud but it kicked it back into the stage and you didn't get that piercing you know uh mid-range sound throughout the club and and I'll tell you the the, the second time they came through in July they had their they had a 2 by 12 with a slot in the middle of it routed in the middle and they had like a a 2 by 3 foot thick plexiglass screen and they said man <laughs> This is help. All these little bars we're playing. This is helping us out wherever we play now. So thanks, Bill. You know, and Stevie didn't say that. He was kind of a head down play guy. He didn't really. But the, but the road manager said, Oh yeah, it's been great. And they loved playing here. They said the sound was great, and that's about all I remember. And I also remember that that you know, from nowadays you hear people talk about it like there was two three hundred people. But I think the first time maybe sixty, second time was a Friday maybe a hundred and twenty. You know, but uh, but that plexiglass thing is a that's a Bill I'm proud of Fitzgerald's that, yeah. signature move. Actually, <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what I expect. Yeah. We started to talk about the American Music Festival. You want to talk a little bit about what that what that is and how that got started? Yeah, that was again. I, I mentioned earlier that uh, having gone to the Jazz Fest um, in New Orleans, that very next year, yeah, it would be 1982. Um, I mean, I, I always tell people so that I can talk about Stevie Ray <laughs> that our first celebration was that in 1981, and we did. We we had a we made a banner out of it, and we had we we probably I think we um, certainly on the Saturday we had a barbecue, we had brats and something like that. But then the next year, having gone to the Jazz Fest, we had our first uh, multi-act. July 4th celebration. I think it was a Saturday, one day. We had a yellow and white tent out in the parking lot in the corner, and we had the club stage, and we had uh, we had a four-band lineup. It was uh, Clifton Chenier, who was our newest thing, our newest sensation, you know. Um, we had the Famous Potatoes, who were at that time was arguably our, our that was our house band our house rock and roll band. Were they also in uh, John Prine's band? They, they, had, they had done some uh, recording with John Prine and done some touring with him, but they were off too often. And they thought, well, let's, let's, let's do something. And while John's not working, we'll, we'll play some bar gigs. So that's how they started. John and, Burns. And like, yeah, Johnny Burns, Bob Hoban, Angie Various on drums, um, Pickles Pekarski on bass. And then they added Mike Jordan uh, as a second guitarist and singer, you know, and they were just a blast. So we had Clifton, the Famous Potatoes, the Jazz Members Big Band, and then the the uh, Salty Dogs. So it's kind of bringing back some of the old and some and, and and our regular house jazz band, our regular house rock and roll, roof raising, Famous Potatoes, and then Clifton Chenier was perfect. That was the first one, and I barely remember it. You know, it was so long ago, but uh, but that was a lot of fun, and and I just liked celebrating. I, I'm a Fourth of July guy. I think growing up in all these different towns, my parents, I'm sure, took us to uh, whatever. You know, uh, I mean, in Cincinnati, they had a great amusement park there um, on the river. Riverview it's called. We used to go there. Um, it seemed like we always had some kind of a parade to go to or whatever, and, and uh, I enjoyed those. Um, 
and I liked the small town aspect. And if, even as I got to be, uh, when I was living in Chicago, spent a lot of time out in Dixon on the Rock River. Mm-hmm. They had their Petunia Festival was a July 4th. Uh, I think a lot of Midwesterners are used to that. You know, put up a tent, have a band, have a barbecue. So that was easy. But man, you couple that thinking with what I saw at the Jazz Festival um, in New Orleans. I mean, it just went from there. And, and you know, I used to pay attention to people like, uh, like I became aware of Bill Graham due to the band, right. probably. That's or funny. I was thinking of Bill Graham today. Bill Graham. I I'm sure that I was paying attention when these live albums would come out or I go, who is this guy? And look at these crazy bills with the Grateful Dead and, you know, Rashawn Roland Kirk or whatever he yeah, did. Yeah, he's you a know. kindred spirit to you, yeah, I would think. Um, and uh, I noticed that stuff. And, of course, that was when the band did The Last Waltz, I, I mean, that was a pretty cool thing. But when that f- film came out, I, I took 35 friends to whatever that— 35. Yeah, I think so. We, I bought the tickets in advance. And, and you know, I so said, you guys want to go, right? You know? So back to what we were talking about. Um, the what were we talking? Fourth of July. Fourth of July. Yeah. So um, that you're a Fourth of July guy. Yeah. And now that you say it, I mean, I always make the association because, but I could understand. And it's funny yeah. to me how the things you're talking about that you appreciate. It's funny how much, in terms of your passions growing up, how much you pulled those from your childhood or your adolescence mm-hmm. into what right. you've done here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so much just that on a much bigger yeah. scale. Yeah, I mean, I do. St- I still think that yeah, this is this is Billy's fort. But that's your kind of thing, right? Like taking what we had as kids, a, a treehouse concept mm-hmm. as a kid, and taking it through whatever the adult version of that would be. Right, it seems very much your character to me. Right, and yeah. I, which I think is great because it comes from a very sincere place you're Mm -hmm. you're but good god you know when they joke around and say you you know you're living the dream you seem like someone who's been living the dream i would so i would say so i mean i I have plenty of people when they hear me complain they go bill you've got the greatest job in the world you know well but i I would also say that that's a funny thing too because everybody says now that the club is for sale uh you should buy the club. You should, buy, and everybody's got this notion that wouldn't it be fun to run the club? And mm-hmm. honestly, I think you've—it's a lot of work from just watching you guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, you spend a lot of time here. It's—it's—I don't think most people have the energy to mm-hmm. make something like this work the way you guys have. And I got to say, I've been very lucky to 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 be able to be the uh, the creative guy here, the guy who dreams up all this stuff and. You know, from the musical angle or the circus here or whatever's going on or the, the way, you know, the, the night might flow. And, and other people are doing the banking and the ordering and the cleaning and the, you know, I do some repairs around here. I know how to do the toilets and all that stuff. But, you know, I, I don't have to think about the taxes and other people do that. And that's been pretty nice for me to not have to do that. You know. Sure. Well, that touches on another thing. This is a family business. Right. Yeah. How hard is that? I would think that would be a very difficult thing. You're, you know, you're juggling a lot of things that are. It's. I give our family. family a pretty big pat on the back. It's not easy, you know, working with uh, your brothers and sisters and dad, and you know, 
we did pretty good. You know, we did pretty good. And then, and of course, my wife Kate. You know, yeah, I mean, she's Let's been here. Let's talk about Kate for a second. Yeah, I mean, she's been working here. God, I don't know, since the mid '80s, something like that. And uh, she's done a lot of a lot of that stuff. You know that I mean, and we've had some rough patches here. You know, financially and you know with all the business with the restaurant that we opened. You know, back in the early 2001, two on there. You know that we ran into trouble. She she kind of championed through a lot of that stuff, and um, it's a lot of work, a lot of stress. You know, and and it's, and it's, then she's bartending, that's and it too. she's it's hosting too. Right. I mean, because and, I think people people enjoy when you guys are here. People right. kind of enjoy, and everybody wants to say hello and talk to you. I mean, I've seen, mm-hmm. and you guys handle that very gracefully. Um, and, and I think you enjoy being with the people. So many of them, I think you count as. Friends. I wish I was better at that, though. At the, at the, you know, not not running everywhere to change things or check the beer. I wish I'd, I'd spent more time just relaxing with people. I think Kate does a better job at that. At well, times. maybe that's the yin and the yang of it, right? Yeah. I mean, it'd be really hard, I think, for you to to do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, I believe, a story. Tell me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> when did you first? lay eyes on Kate oh man well I I met her I, I first time I saw her is, is when I painted her parents house on Elmwood and Oak Park in 19 I'm so bad I think it was 1970 in the ni- early 1970s describe that episode because if yeah. I heard this correctly it, it's a little magical well <laughs> I didn't hear about this at the time, but when I painted their house, you know, you paint somebody's house, you're there for two, three, four weeks, you know. And with our crew, you know, we, you know, every time there was a hint of rain, we took the day off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, big house, and uh, so we were there for quite a while and got to know the family pretty well, especially uh, Alice Mahalik. Uh, you know, she, she was home a lot because uh, she was a teacher. And, um, and we just observe, you know, you're observing a family from 30, 40 feet in the air, you know, comings and goings. And I used to, I remember, I remember definitely seeing Kate and her sister Teresa coming home from school and they would, they would race each other, chasing and jumping and, you know, yelling at each other, but they were best friends. But they, they, that's how they would arrive at the house. It was some kind of a race from school jumping over fences and, and yards and down alleys and secret passageways to see who'd get to the house first. But that's how I, I met them. But I guess Kate remembers me um, when I, I entered her room <laughs> to, to get in there to start scraping and, you know, free up the and glass. And you didn't realize and that she was in there. I didn't know she was in there, but um, I probably took a screwdriver and, and got the door thing open and climbed in her room and, and started a little bit, but... Uh, I guess later at some point, she, according to her sister Meg, she, Meg said that Kate said, well, I'll, something like, I'll, I'll probably never get married, but if I ever do get married, I'll, I'll, I'd like to marry him, or something like that. Yeah, That's amazing. <laughs> she saw this vision of yeah. Mr. Wright, you know, <laughs> just come landing in her room. Oh, excuse me, and then you leave the room, yeah. and then years later... Yeah, years later, she uh, she showed up here in the parking lot on her bike, looking for a job, and I and I said, "Oh, I remember you," you know, because I didn't. Once we painted their house, that was the end of that, you know. So, 
years later when she came to look for a job here I got her I, I took her her phone number and name and I gave it to Deanne who was the bar I said give this girl a job she's great you know and that was it and she started working here and and uh, yeah that was the beginning so that's that's one of the yeah. best meat stories meat cute <laughs> stories I've ever heard yeah. um, you know the other thing it, it seems like the artists that play here have an appreciation for the place I mean didn't Dave Alvin come back over the festival kind of somewhat inconveniently this past year because he heard it may be the last one that you were oh yeah over and um, yeah we really wanted him to play and uh, and I had to I had to use I had to say that to him because we made an offer and then he he uh, it was going to be difficult to pull it off because they'd have to fly in and I finally had to tell him, and he was like, "Oh no, Bill! You know he didn't want to hear that." And, and I said, "Well, I just, I just felt like if if it did happen, you'd kill me if I didn't invite you, you know." So, so we we made it work out, and I'm glad we did. And yeah, he's been very loyal to this club, and his shows here are definitely, you know, some of the best ever. And they would play these huge gigs here, and and just blow the roof off, and they'd want to leave the gear and come the next morning. And, and then I'd meet them here at 10, 30, 11 in the morning. And uh, it's just really cool to, to watch a band load, load out, you know, in the light of day. And you just see all this debris everywhere in the club, you know, the empty bottles and the, maybe the napkins were tossed the night before if it was during the festival. Um, you know, and Chris Gaffney's asking you for a beer at the bar, you know, and, and uh, everybody's chit-chatting and you know it's just kind of there's just all this evidence that something happened just eight ten hours prior you know right yeah it's kind of cool well it seems like the artists and you like there's a kind of a special relationship like they really value what this place is about and they respect you and yet i would i would guess to some degree that that can be a little bit of an uneasy alliance at times because your management, their talent, you know, there's money involved. How does that, how, how does that impact your relationship with the artists? How, how, what kind of a relationship do you have with most of the artists that come through? Um, you know, you, you make your, your offer, your, your money stuff is typically done through an agent or a manager and occasionally it's directly through the artist, but, uh, yeah, my, my relationship, I mean, with, with the artists is typically, um, you know, greet them when they come in. What do you need? You know, make sure that they're... You're a host to them as well. Just a host to them. But I, I'm not, um, you know, I, I don't try and, you know, I don't hang out with them too much, you know. And at the end of the night, I'll, I'll do that, you know. But, uh, yeah, I think... I think it's important for them to see the owner here, first of all. I... I I've, you know, I've learned that over the years that that's a, a big deal. You know, you got to, you know, they, they like it when you're here. And uh, and I think, um, you know, I, I just stay out of the way for the most part. And after the gig, I like to congratulate them or hang out or have a beer or what can I, some of them are want to get move right on out. Some want to hang out, you know, and uh, um, yeah, I think, and I think a lot of artists, if they have a good gig at your club and they they can feel all this stuff that the staff and the owner and the hosts, whoever, my wife, Kate, or whoever it is, is just little things that you can do or say to them or help them with on the way out the door. Little things carry a lot of weight, 
you know, that you don't even realize, you know. Right. But, uh, um, you know, and, and, if, and if an artist has a great night, everybody's, oh, we all made money and all that. If you have a bad night, you try and help them discuss the all the, the 101 excuses why it might not have been a great night. And But, you know, and you, you, know, you try and make them feel better in that regard. Um, or occasionally you say, hey, can you can you kick back a little? <laughs> We're, we lost, you know, we, we owe you three and we only took in 1,500. You know, can you help take the sting out of this? You, you have to have those conversations. You do. Though, and, and many of them are fine with that. Many of them will say, listen, we'll make it up next time. And those are awkward, but, you, you know, you have to do that now and then. And, and I'm willing to do it, you know. Some artists, you just, you don't even broach the subject, you know, or you're going to. Right. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think most acts that come through here, if, if they're really on a shoestring, you, you know they are, and you just can't. Well, I would think. You know, would, and, and some of them are thinking, oh, we thought we'd, we'd pack them in tonight, and, and they're going to maybe go to a club the next day where it's going to be even tougher. You know? Right. So. Um, it, it would seem to me that life as a musician has just gotten harder and harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to sell records because of streaming stuff and, you know. Yeah. It's, it's I, I would think to some degree that, that, that that's a, a difficult life and that maybe. Yeah, even the merch situation now. I mean, I right. think T-shirts, of course, are great, but can you sell a CD that well? I mean, there's so many other ways to get music. It's, it's uh, I think it is harder, but I think, I think the, uh, the joy of performing live is still 100% there. It's great, you know. Are yeah. there, are, and that's the one thing I love about this club. It, it's boiled down to that. That's that's what it is here. How has this club survived given the influx of all the various clubs that have opened up in the last few years and everything? How, how, yeah, we, I remember uh, you were kind of concerned about that at some point, and yet it seems like the place continues to hold its own the way it always yeah, has. Yeah, I think, yeah, we try not to worry too much about what's going on around us, but I, I know we've lost... Um, there's certain shows that don't happen here as much or or anymore because there are now uh, options in the city it's funny that pay I, more money it's funny know. though i was at a i was it was actually chuck profit and i mm-hmm. saw him at another venue i don't know maybe i shouldn't say the venue it was actually it's a fine place but it's mm-hmm. a little bit more uh just kind of fancy and yeah. um and Chuck Prophet was playing there, and you could just tell in the beginning that he, he felt like he was he could not get a fire started there. You know, mm-hmm. everybody was kind of sitting at their tables, and and I remember saying to my wife Amy, like, "Boy, I love Chuck Prophet, but this is I, I'm not feeling this. Yeah, I'm used, to, I'm spoiled. You know, I've seen him in in, mm-hmm. in a roadhouse, which is kind of the way I think of this place. I know it's a nightclub, but it feels like a roadhouse, which I like better. Right. And when it was all over, even he said, okay, well, thank you. Um, well, I wasn't really sure how that was going to work out. I guess, I yeah. guess it worked out. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and it, yeah, please just, take your trays and your uh, dirty forks <laughs> and that and, and deposit them. It the, just <laughs> made me feel like, it, you know, it does matter where you are. You oh, know, yeah. Yeah. it's the same band in a different environment trying to kind of work its way through something that maybe just didn't have the same kind of energy. And and I would think that that's one of the things people like about playing here, that there's a, it's that for the same reason people like to see a baseball game at Wrigley Field or a, there are just places that lend themselves to what they yeah. are. 
we have a good room here. Everybody knows this is a good room. I think it's one of the best rooms in Chicago. It's a good listening room. It's a good rocking room. It moves when people dance. The building literally moves. You know, it breathes. You know, musicians that know what they're doing. They, they I see guys walk in here and they know right away. They look around. And they go, oh, okay. This can be good. You know. Right. I mean, there's just yeah. there's an atmosphere. There's no steel in here. It's it's wood. You know, it's a. So um, Chuck Poppert mentioned that the other day about. That, that I think he was quoting Bob Dylan that live music's meant to be played in a wooden room with four walls and you know it's that simple and and I think there's also just a certain feeling about uh, a space the way it looks it's just easy on the, the visually how it looks you know and the proportions can make uh, you know I mean think about all the films that have been done here well, why did those why did those directors like why did they feel like oh I want to do it here you know they must have felt something. They must have noticed something that felt right and looked right to them. What you know? movies were did, did you shoot? Well, uh, Color of Money, League of Their Own, uh, Adventures in Babysitting. How were those experiences? Blink. Oh, great, great times. I mean, what a, you know, it's like a dream. You know that that you're you're gonna have to you can have to close down your business and sit back and watch all these artists and directors and act, actors and actresses do their work. Who impressed you or who... And, you know... Um, who was memorable to you in any way? Oh, boy. Um, Paul Newman was here? Yeah. Um, yeah, just, I mean, you pinch yourself. You know, Paul Newman was here, you know. Um, oh, I mean, the funny the funny little anecdote I love to tell was my... They were, they were working late to get this final shot, and it was it was after dark. And Paul Newman was was on a break, and he walked behind our bar and helped himself with a Heineken. And my mom, the brat that she is, was sitting at the bar and goes, uh, "You're going to pay for that, aren't you, sir?" You know. <laughs> and it stopped him, and he, and, he, and he looked around. And he goes, I, "I thought we bought the joint," you know. <laughs> and they both chuckled after that, but. Uh, um, Did you get to see Scorsese working? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he. Oh, absolutely. He got his hair cut. I was I was booking bands in the office back there, on the phone, and he was sitting right behind me, getting his hair cut. <laughs> he had the he had the little apron on. Some lady, some hairdressers cutting his hair, and and I'm talking about big twist or whatever. And I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> criminy. You know, you just have to sit there and try and act normal. Like this is a. This is typical here. <laughs> and then League of Their Own shot here? Yeah, League of Their Madonna. Own with Madonna, um, Tom Hanks. How personable uh, were those folks? Gina Davis. Oh, very nice. Yeah, a lot of fun. And that's when uh, I think uh, Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna were palling around. They were on the news a lot together as being good friends. And they were. They were, they were funny and kidding around a lot. Uh, I remember standing in the corner with Tom Hanks at the old service bar. And he's watching a scene playing out, and he goes, um, and he says, "You got a sharps in there?" And I said, "Yeah." And pull one out of the bar and gave it to him. He goes, "These things saved my life, you know." And, and that was a very telling thing. Huh. I guess he quit drinking or something like that. But uh, nice guy. Um, uh, oh God! And that scene, the dance, the famous dance scene, mm -hmm. um, uh, where they—it was, I think, the hottest day in recorded history in, in Chicago that day, and. They had everything had to be quiet in here because of all the microphones. So they had air conditioning out in the alley, blowing 
you know, with these little tubes trying to get some air in here. And I mean, I think they shot that scene. It ha- I think they might have got the temperature down to 89. <laughs> and you have all these, you know, the dancers from the Hubbard Street Dance Company and then all the principals. You, you, ever, you know that scene? Yeah. It's wild. It, I mean, it was a great fun to watch that and, and watch it over and over and over again, you know. Um, um, it was wonderful. It was, it was great. Kate got to be an extra in League of Their Own. So, you know, I think she was pregnant with Annie and she got to, to go down to Wrigley Field and, and she's in a scene way off in the distance. I'm mixing these events up, but that, the thing with Mavis here was, you know, that was, both those events were really wonderful. And, and uh, yeah, they were shot here. And, and uh, I think that was the right room at the right time, you know. Otis uh, Clay played that night too. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, so, what do you? Uh, how do you envision this going? Like, what happens? How does this? How does this work in an ideal world? What happens here? Um, well, I think you know there are there are, are folks who are interested. There are different groups that have looked at. People have done little tours and looked at the property, and now we're just waiting to see if uh, if somebody actually makes an offer. But I think for me, I think, um, you know, turning 65 on November 4th, you know, I've got my Medicare thing going. I've already applied. I'm waiting for that card to show up. I understand I could, I could get Social Security now if I'd like to. You know, I've got to figure that out. But uh, I think then it's going to be, um, you know, we, we bought these places. Kate and I bought a, a, a small bank building, very small bank building, and, and – uh, little town of Lynxville, Wisconsin. And then Kate, God bless her, allowed me to buy a, uh, uh, a 10-room house on the Mississippi that I've admired for 30 years driving by it, wondering what is going on with that house. It's so beautiful. It's so cute. It's so, there's nothing ever happens there. We ended up buying it at an auction. Well, we didn't, we, we went to the auction, didn't buy it, but ended up buying it from the guy who did buy it. Three, ma- three months after he went sour on his purchase. We bought it from him. I remember how relieved Kate was when you didn't buy it. Oh, yeah. I have a video of that moment. <laughs> she then, said, thank God, when we didn't get it. And then it. three months later. And here we are. Now we, so, so we're kind of, we're both excited about reviving these places. We're in a beautiful, you know, bluff town on the Mississippi and, and a block from the river. So... All that, you know, you, you wonder, um, is this going to, are we going to move there? Are we going to, are we going to miss our friends and family um, around here? And I, and I think that's the big question, you know, are we going to, can we, can we have one foot in the, you know, in, in Cook County down here in Oak Park and, and another foot up in Wisconsin on the river and, and have a nice uh, balance, you know, could we, could we keep an apartment here, you know? But, but we, something has to give. We have to sure. sell something. You know, we, we don't have a, you know, 401K, and we don't have a bunch of savings. It's, this is it. It's our house, and it's our nightclub. So You've poured everything into this. Yeah, yeah. We've just had a lot of fun here and just, just get, got swept up from the beginning, and, we're, and, and, and that's been my life for 30, I mean, over, more than half my life, you know, has been this this club this uh 
you know, live music six nights a week. And I, and I, I'm not, I'm, I'm here when I want to be now, but, uh, yeah. So it's like, but I've been going up to Wisconsin, as you know, a lot lately. I'll go up there, you know, every other weekend I'm up there. I like it. I love it, you know. But, yeah, you kind of wonder if you really make that commitment and then you're there for three months straight, you're going to start feeling that, like, God, I kind of miss, you know, hanging out the sidebar or, or being excited about, you know, seeing Chuck Prophet or Dave Alvin at the club or... Uh, you know, James McMurtry's coming in, or uh, you know, I hear this new this new band from Nashville that Donnie booked is going to be there. So I'm I'm worried about that. You know, um, God, somebody actually had the nerve to tell me that you know when people retire, they some there's sort of a window that some of them die within three months of retirement, and some right around 18 months. I'm like, what? <laughs> Somebody who doesn't want you to retire said Maybe that. Maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> you have to keep. I that think, in mind. but I, I saw. So yeah. So it's a new chapter. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be an adventure. Um, but I, I think these projects. You know me. I love tinkering. I think we're we're excited about that stuff. And and I I always think about. You know, we go to a lot of garage sales, and I've always loved the um, all these garage sales. There's always that wall in the garage with the baby food jars with the lids attached to a, a one by two and and this fella or gal or whoever has organized all their wood screws and their sheet metal screws they got them all <laughs> i thought is that is that what i'm heading for where you that's feeling of satisfaction where i've got all my brads and my drywall screws in order <laughs> i know where they are <laughs> well you know if that would make you happy that's exactly what you'll do because you seem like somebody who's always just followed what they no. thought would make them happy. No. I just don't know that that's an easy thing for people to do. I don't know yeah. why. I'll never, a, I'll never ever be that. Or I'll, I'm going to still have the big trays full of shit. You know, everything. That's every, true. I don't, I don't think, know. I don't think, you, yeah. I don't think your new era is going to be about <laughs> being organized. No, but I, I think I'll still have, I mean, I have a lot of projects. I've got boats. I've got buildings to, you know, things to do and, and, uh, are both already beating down impulses to to want to put on a show up in in some cool building or restaurant or church or street or or ball field in these idyllic little towns in Wisconsin and Iowa we see constantly you're like everything's there we just need someone to help them do it you know so we're beating down those urges to do that but I'll, I bet you something will happen up there we'll host something if not, we could do a house concert, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So we'll see. Well, Amazon continues its quest for world domination, but not everybody is totally on board. Alexa, can you play us Sue Salvi's thoughts on the subject? Dear lame Amazon. Why in sweet hell don't you have telepathic ordering yet? Are you too busy sitting around watching Titanic? Because you obviously think it's still the 90s and that it's acceptable for me, a customer, to have to use my already overtaxed fingers to order goods from your website. Instead, you're resting on your damn dash button laurels.
as if they're so great and as if they don't make my house look like I have corporate sponsored doorbells all over it and as if you're not just sitting around watching Night Court or something with Stone Temple Pilots on in the background. And don't you dare say I can just order from Alexa using my mouth because if you do, I'll tell you to go back to watching Sopranos because my mouth does enough damned work. I just want to buy from you using my thoughts. Is that too much to ask? I can't tell you how many times I've lain in bed at night and thought to myself, liquid tide, 138 ounces, quantity one, or select a size bounty, 16 pack, quantity one, or natural balance sweet potato and fish formula for adult dogs, 14 pound bag, quantity one. And despite all my brain efforts, I've received quantity none. Why are you making it so hard for me to spend money on your website? The phone, the laptop, the dash buttons, Alexa. I mean, maybe these were sexy in their heyday, but now they're pretty much compact discs. Where even is my phone? I don't know. Who knows? And Alexa's downstairs, and I'm upstairs, and she's smug. And unless she sprouts legs, which I'm certain you haven't thought of because you're obviously in the throes of arrested development, she ain't coming up here anytime soon, which means I won't be receiving the 64 ounces of liquid plumber quantity one I've ordered over and over again in my mind. I mean, if anybody over there could turn off West Wing for half a second and put a coffee cup's worth of thought into ways to move the company into the present day, my drain declogger would already be on the way. Order placed between wondering if my pants were getting tighter and worrying about North Korea. I mean, at this point, with your old timey out ovations, which is the opposite of innovations, which I'm coining right now as an intense skin graphable burn to you, you might as well change your name to Ye Old Amazon Shop. Honestly. It's like someone came up with one quick ordering and has sat back with their feet up and watched the original Law and Order ever since. Truth is, whenever I do one-click ordering, I'm actually embarrassed for you. I might as well be filling out block letters in square fields on an order form in the back of a magazine. They are equal in antiquation. Maybe, oh, I don't know. Buy some lab coats from yourself, not using your mind, and get people in a room and talk about the direction that the company is headed in. Because you seem stuck in a time, and that time seems to be the past. Catch up and monitor my thoughts for potential consumer activity, or be stuck in the 80s watching Family Ties forever. Sincerely, a concerned customer. Thanks to Sue Salvi for her always illuminating perspective. Thanks to Bill Fitzgerald for taking the time to talk with us. And of course, thanks to you for tuning in. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and you've been listening to the Hog Butcher Radio Hour.